When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Greetings, everyone. Uh, welcome to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Daniel Paris. I'm delighted to have as my guest today, Edward Chancellor. He is an author, a historian, and an investment strategist. And he's the author, most recently, of The Price of Time, The Real Story of uh, Interest. It's out just now from uh, Atlantic Monthly Press. Uh, Edward, thank you so much for, for agreeing to be on the show. Uh, Pleased to be with you. Uh, your timing is impeccable. I was wondering if you could take me to a couple uh, uh, horse races and bet on some ponies. You've written a book on the implications of what happens when interest rates go perhaps pear-shaped, shall we say, or move sharply in one direction or another. You wrote the book, I imagine, over the last uh, several years. And then the books, the pub date is August 16th, almost perfectly timed for a sharp reversal in interest rates, uh, particularly in the last few days uh, in England, uh, guilts have skyrocketed. We're taping this on the 29th of September. Tell me about your sense of timing and are there any uh, investments that I can make with you uh, that would uh, allow me to take advantage of what appears to be a almost perfect sense of multi-decade timing? Um, Well, Daniel, you're probably aware how long it takes uh, to get a book out. so I'd, I'd finished this book really by April of last year, and it was in another 14 months or so before it hit it hit the bookstores. And so, uh, and I probably could have finished the book, you know, a couple of years earlier if I'd been any quicker. So I, I think the timing is a matter of of um, luck. The the um, we we've had this very long period of ultra low interest rates, which is the subject of the second half of the book, which we'll obviously discuss later. And that had been going on for great, you know, for a very long period of time. And it, it was it was unclear to me, and I think to most market participants, when it would finally come to an end. People make their own good luck, so I congratulate you uh, uh, all the same. Let's let's take a, a kind of break the book down because I think it's, it's uh, wonderfully written, by the way, and easily for people who might not naturally move towards a book on interest rates, uh, but are interested in what's going on in the world economy or their own economy, this is actually a great introduction. So I highly recommend it. But I, I would structure the book in, in three different ways because it, it, it operates on many levels. The first is is explanation. The second is history. And the third is some of the arguments that you're really kind of making. But you do a very good job uh, early on the book in, in explaining interest rates. And it, it turns out that it's a, been a topic that's been debated for centuries not just by economists, 
but by philosophers, by theologians, by business people. And uh, I think you have some great examples of people mulling this over for literally for, for centuries. Do you want to provide some kind of highlights on how the definition of interest, how it works in an economic sense and in a practical sense and why it's been such a, in many ways, a controversial issue for, for, for centuries? Yeah, or um, millennia, millennia, say, not centuries. Yeah. Um, yeah, well, interest has has been around uh, for five millennia. Uh, we, we can find the, its earliest origins, recorded origins, in in ancient Mesopotamia, and uh, for most of that period, it's been the subject of a great deal of strife or criticism and then intellectual disagreement. And the criticism of interest, uh, which one can find clearly articulated by the Greek philosopher Aristotle, was that interest is um, exploitative because the lender is demanding back more than he's given in the loan. So the interest being the increment on the loan. And um, my argument is that, that that Aristotle got it wrong. And Aristotle's, you mentioned theologians, Aristotle's ideas were taken up uh, by Catholic theologians or scholars, scholastics in the Middle Ages, most notably Thomas Aquinas. And they they stuck to the idea of, you know, the medieval theologians uh, were obsessed about, you know, what, you know, about justice, what we, what we would now call social justice, uh, and, and unfair prices. And they thought that interest was an unfair price, an unfair charge, exploit, exploitation again. Um, but one of the medieval scholars, Thomas of Cobham, the English scholar, made a, a, an interesting comment. He said that the, 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 the lender was a seller of time because the loan um, takes place over a period of time. And then Thomas of Cobham says, well, this is still wrong because time belongs to God. Well, that may be acceptable uh, if you have a sort of entirely theological view of, of society. But when you move into a, a secular society from you know, the Renaissance onwards, then, of course, we start seeing time as man's own possession or man's most precious possession. And as, as you move into a capitalist society, you get this famous comment so much repeated by Ben Franklin that time is money. And my argument in the book is that not only is interest an omnipresent phenomenon, in other words, what I call the price of time, is just a, a function of human existence because human beings are impatient and we need to, you know, we, we, we need to put a different value on something, on having something today from having it tomorrow or even, you know, in 10 years' time. There's a difference in values across time. But once you get into a complex capitalist or market economy, then there are all these transactions taking place across time. Um, namely, say, for instance, investment. Uh, and 
on what and what level of investment you see what return you seek on your investment well that's affected by the hurdle rate or what uh, business people call the payback period which has an embedded interest in it now the valuation whether of stocks or equities or real estate you can't have valuation without a discount or or interest rate uh, in an economy where people borrow uh, lend and borrow they're shifting their consumption across periods of time and if you remember one point in the book i say if you think about these intertemporal transactions as taking place across a river a bridge joining the present to the future then interest is really the toll on the bridge that allows people to coordinate their activities between the present and the future um, I might, you know, as I'm getting on a bit in life, uh, you know, not be seeking to borrow to, um, you know, to, to, to boost my consumption today. But you know, when I was in my early 20s at college, I was borrowing because, you know, I thought at some stage <laughs> I'd get a job and be able to pay back the loan. So you see all these activities, are, are they're all interlinked and at some level, they have to be coordinated, and the the interest rate uh, coordinates um, the activities across time. Uh, uh, there's a certain towards the end of the book, um, I cite Warren Buffett saying that interest is to valuation what what gravity is to nature, um, and what he's saying there is really that you know that all valuations will be sort of affected by the interest rate. But you can actually take Buffett's point even more generally and say that interest is like like gravity for human society. It's something that it, even if you don't see it, um, even if you're engaged in activity where it's not obvious, for instance, you know, believe it or not, when you even if you buy a car for cash because it's a durable asset, there will be and it will be giving you its use over a number of years. That use over a number of years has within it an embedded interest rate or discount rate. So I'm saying that um, you know the main argument of the book is that interest is everywhere, and it is the most, it is the it it is the the essence in particular of a capitalist system, but holds for all types of societies. And then uh, when we get on later to what's been going on recently, I say a lot of the problems that I think we see today can be ascribed to abnormally low interest rates. So in that definition, again, there are the philosophers and that you do have some fascinating points from the religious side. But you do also cover several centuries of, of economists wrestling not only with the definition, but the implications of higher versus lower and, and meddling with interest rates. It is a central issue in finance. So what I, I really appreciate uh, uh, about the price of time is the integration both of the history and the the economic debates. It's not a settled issue. And you, you do a, a very nice job uh, covering that. And of course, there's just ample material over now, correct, over five millennium. And, and you do cite uh, Will Getzman, who's been a, a guest on the show before, who's done a wonderful job with the first call it four and a half millennia, and and uh, you're then focusing on the last half millennia, millennium. But there, there, the evidence. Yeah, can both... I stop you there for a second? Sure. Because uh, William Goetzman makes um, 
I think, you know, I cite it perhaps more than once in the course of the book, a comment when he's writing about uh, origins of finance in, in Mesopotamia, where he says the invention of interest is the most important invention in the history of finance because it allows people to transact across time. And I think that that, I think Gertzman, you know, completely gets it. And then, you know, a lot of other great economists, you know, um, let's say um, Joseph Schumpeter, he um, he says that uh, interest is, is, is an essential phenomenon. Irving Fisher uh, of Yale, um, perhaps, you know, some people consider him to be the greatest econ- American economist of the 20th century. He says interest is a, an omnipresent phenomenon. And even Karl Marx, uh, who, who, who tends to the view <laughs> of the medieval scholars that interest is abusive and, and exploitative, um, he also says that he has a rather evocative phrase where he says that interest exists in the pores of production. Um, and so you can see that I think every great economist, regardless of their, if they, if you will, their sort of political inclination, uh, has sooner or later come to the understanding that this was a vitally important subject. Will, Will has a great line, which basically you've just restated, which is, you know, uh, finance is a time machine. And uh, it's, a, it's a great uh, kind of image to describe what what these tools do. Now, sometimes the time machine breaks down or puts us in the wrong spot, but uh, it is indeed a time machine. Let's, let's go over a couple of the uh, instances where interest rates kind of went haywire and might have been misleading or causes of problems, basically speculative bubbles and f- rises and falls of societies and prosperity and collapses. You, you, you really narrated uh, wonderfully uh, the Bank of England, the Bank of France, uh, the ups and downs of the 19th century. Walter uh, Bagot, how, how do the English pronounce his last name? I'm uh, sorry, I'm going to... As a, uh, Badgett, Badgett. Badgett. So there, I as an American have just showed how American I am. I can't, I've been referencing him for decades and I've never once pronounced his name correctly. Thank you, Badgett. Walter Badgett, the lender of the last resort for, for the Bank of England and so forth. Some of your, your best episodes of where changes in the rates of interest and in your from your perspective, unnaturally low interest rates create all sorts of problems in past his, in past instances. Um, yeah, I will. But before, before I do, I just want to, you know, preface my comments with an observation that, um, it, 20 odd years ago, I wrote a history of financial speculation called devil type, take the highmost, which covers, you know, most of the, you know, the great speculative periods up to that, that, um, up to the, you know, the, millennium and um that book was um largely influenced by the uh, behavioral finance explanations of bubbles that have been popular in in recent years i mean you think of sort of robert schiller of yale and his book irrational exuberance and uh, daniel kahneman um who, who nobel prize winner and wrote as a you know, very popular book called Thinking Fast and Slow. And Kahneman, um, you know, is is um, associated with, with you know, the, the field, you know, take this field of behavioral finance and people making cognitive errors. 
And so there is this view that speculative mania is largely to do with with sort of uh, irrational exuberance, to use Schiller's phrase. And uh, in this book, I'm laying aside, as you can see, the behavioural, the cognitive or behavioural explanations for the bubble and focusing on the monetary aspects. And what I argue is that all the great bubbles from the Dutch tulip mania of the 1630s through to uh, the what was called the everything bubble, uh, which is the bubble uh, that uh, the bubbles that appeared over the last decade and reached their crescendo last year, that these have all occurred at periods of abnormally low interest rates or falling interest rates or extremely easy money. And that's true, as I say, um, from the you know, from 17th century onwards. The, the, the example that I cite at a, a great length in a chapter of its own uh, is that of John Law and the Mississippi bubble that occurred in France in 1719 and 1720. And the reason I examine that bubble or that, that specter mania at length is that John Law, who was a Scotsman who came to France uh, in the early 18th century, uh, he, he had this idea of establishing a central bank and replacing gold with paper money. He established, as, as many of your listeners will know, uh, a company that we call the Mississippi Company. Its actual name was the Compagnie des Andes. Uh, and that what Law did, having established his central bank, is he printed a lot of paper money and he used uh, most, most of the money from his central bank went actually to acquire shares in his company and that company also m took over the French national debt and, and law managed for a brief period to bring uh, French interest rates down from um, 6 to 8% uh, down to, to 2% or even less than 2% and the valuation of his company, the Mississippi company, over a brief period went up 20-fold until it was trading on an earnings yield, what we call an earnings yield, which is the dividend or, or the or you know, the dividend and the profits as a percentage of the share price. The dividend yield and earnings yield were two percent. So you can see, and and John Law at the time said, the value of the shares is justified by the low interest rates. And then what happened, having flooded the French economy? with paper money, the money then spread out into the economy, created an inflation, and Law's scheme fell to pieces, and, the, and, and he actually uh, had to flee the country um, uh, in, in disgrace and, and lost, uh, lost his fortune. He estimated his fortune one stage to be the greatest fortune ever held by any individual in entire history. And, and it was gone in a flash. And why I think this is so instructive, as I say at the end of that chapter, is that the modern economists and central bankers actually 
use law as their model. They say, and actually, uh, William Gertzman in his book, um, in in his history of finance, also talks up um, law. And I thought, when I'm looking at that, I find slight cognitive dissonance between the praise uh, given to law as an economist and as a sort of uh, early, the first practitioner of what would now be called active monetary policy and the complete disaster of, of his scheme. I think that when when a currency is backed uh, by um, a commodity, such a, or a precious metal such as gold, uh, then the role of the what was initially they were called national banks, like the Bank of England. The role of the Bank of England was just to ensure the convertibility of its paper notes into gold, and therefore the process of setting interest rates was automatic uh, in the sense that if the if the Bank of England was sitting on a great pile of gold, had excess reserves, they would keep interest rates low. But when gold flowed out of the bank vaults, and in particular when it left the country, and that there was a danger that the bank wouldn't be able to convert its notes into, um, into gold, uh, on demand, then interest rates rose. So um, there was, a, if you will, a, an automatic market mechanism that determined uh, the interest rates. Now, it, look, I'm not saying that was a perfect system because in the 19th century, you had very severe financial crises, you know, really at 10-year at intervals uh, in, in Britain and America roughly. And um, and those were, you know, very harsh to, to live through. Masses of bankruptcies, large periods of, uh, you know, unemployment. So in the 20th, over the course of 20th century, you know, we have moved to a paper currency system. Gold is no longer um, the, the backing of the currency. And over that period then, the interest rate is essentially determined by the decisions of the central banks. And the uh, the incentive, uh, I argue, has always been to keep interest rates low, to avoid, you know, the, the pressures and convulsions uh, of um, economic downturns and financial crises and that um that pays off in the, in the short run in that if you can deal with a financial crisis you meant to mention water budget uh the the british uh financial journalist economists who had this idea that the role of the central bank should be as lender of last resort during a crisis and i was when um you know when the financial world is falling to pieces um, and um, and bond yields are going up and so forth, uh, then the central bank can come in and, 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 and maintain calm. The danger, as I've tried to explain in the book, is that you can have too much of a good thing and that, um, and here we're getting on to sort of more recent history, 
that uh, after the financial crisis of you know, 2007-2008, central banks, as you know, took interest when the Federal Reserve took interest rates to close to zero, the Fed funds rate, and uh, in in Europe and Japan, interest rates were taken to negative. And as you remember, I say, citing Gertzman, if the invention of interest was the most significant event in financial history, the appearance of negative interest uh, that never been seen in, in, in five millennia uh, must be considered at least the second most <laughs> important innovation. And my argument is that we enjoyed um, a certain benefit from bringing the financial crisis and what was called the Great Recession to an early end. But there were unforeseen and unacknowledged consequences um, from these the lowest interest rates in history uh, that we that sapped the financial system or at least put the financial system into an extremely precarious position and sapped the dynamism from our economies. Let's let's highlight that again. One of the terms of art that's used to describe ultra low interest rates and its impact on investment and business decisions is is financial repression. It sounds pretty gruesome, and and in in many ways it is. Do you want to provide how you know a description of of how financial repression has worked for the past fifteen years? That's on one hand punishing savers, and on the other hand, ultra low rates have created bubble after bubble after bubble, which when they burst, it's very economically disruptive. And these two things are occurring at the same time. The the virtuous people, the savers are getting punished and the speculators are getting rewarded. It's not a good scene. The term financial repression is a term coined um, uh, by American economists to describe, initially to describe uh, monetary practices in, in emerging market countries, which was keeping interest rates too low, uh, below the level of inflation. So you had negative real interest rates. And in fact, the, the you know, Britain and America and much of Europe after the Second World War uh, practiced this uh, so-called financial repression in the interest rates were kept below, inflation uh, took off and that eroded the real value of the of the government debts that were left over from the Second Second World War. And since the financial crisis, we have been in a period of, so to speak, financial repression in that um, inflation, even when it was low, and before it took off in the last year, um, was still um, you know, at least on average a couple of percentage points above um, the the deposit rates in banks and put, you know, I, I have an account with Citibank and at the end of the year, you know, you, you, you all have it, you know, taxable income on, on deposits, you know, sort of $5 or if you're lucky, uh, if you've kept a big deposit. And, um, you know, that, and I think that, that was, that lost American depositors um, around $500 billion a year in the immediate aftermath of crisis, which is, you know, considerable, some, um, so so as you say, you you penalise um, 
that save us. And I think in particular, as you know, I, I, I argue that the less well-off you are, the more of your financial resources are likely to be kept in cash. You know, we all need really enough cash you know, to bite us over in the event of, of some unexpected uh, unpleasant event. So we all keep you know, precautionary cash. And, you know, and frankly, <laughs> the less well off you are, the more that precautionary cash is going to be a, a share of your total uh, wealth. Whereas, you know, if you're very well off, uh, you're likely to uh, invest in the type, make the type of investments that did very well over the last decade. You probably have some uh, exposure to private equity, uh, which benefited from the very low interest rates, cheap borrowing costs to buy and lever up companies. Uh, you might well have some exposure to venture capital, uh, buying you know, into these so-called unicorn companies, these tech companies, unlisted tech companies with billion-dollar valuations and and more. And the, and the unicorns, the, the venture capital, uh, benefited uh in a number of ways from the very low interest rate environment, partly because you know their profits uh, were, if they exist at all, were in the very long distant future. So if you have very low interest rates, the, the present value of those profits is high. In other words, they, they, and, and also investors were just basically, you know, rolling the dice <laughs> uh, and they were looking for higher returns at a time of low rates. And then if you were in the equity market, then uh, bonds, the equities did very well. And in particular, if you're quite well off, uh, it's not abnormal to, to, you know, to have your private wealth manager give you leveraged exposure to the S&P 500. Uh, so um, I argue um, that, the, um, that the very low interest rates were, um, were one of the reasons why uh, inequality appeared to be uh, increasing inexorably. People, economists, but not, attend... not not Thomas Piketty's inequality, but a different inequality. Because you you do a special outtake to address uh, Piketty and why his argument from about a decade ago is is error filled, but that the financial repression has created social problems, but not 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 exactly Piketty's. Um. Well, what one finds, you know, going back to people arguing about interest uh, over the millennia, is that the economists who are interested in inequality and make that their um, main source of study, they, they, they tend to take the, the Aristotelian view <laughs> of interest uh, being exploitative. Uh, sort of, in a way, nothing has much changed, or, or the Marxist view. Um, what and and Piketty, if you remember, has this formula where he says that when the rate of growth or um, so weight rate of return, which he calls R, is lower than the rate of growth, then um, you will have um, rising. Sorry, we're, uh, higher than the rate of growth, then you will have rising inequality. And I argue the inverse, Piketty. I say. In, in economics, it's quite conventional to use the, the notation R for the rate of interest. I say when R, the rate of interest, is less than growth, as it was over the last decade, or has been for much of this century in the United States, then you will create 
asset price bubbles, financial booms, and the financial booms will benefit people working on Wall Street. They will the uh, rising share prices will benefit the uh, senior executives of listed companies, private equity firms, and so on and so forth. And therefore, uh, you will have a, a rise in inequality. And I, I think you can see that um, quite clearly, both historically, for periods of the 19th century when interest rates were falling. You know, they think of the Gilded Age. Yeah? <laughs> you know, every American knows about the Gilded Age of of um, you know of Vanderbilt and Jay Gould and and um, Carnegie and and Mellon and so forth. Now, the the, you know, the the Gilded Age was a period of of falling and low interest rates, and then in the nineteen twenties, as I argue, the great although interest rates ostensibly were quite high. Uh, in both nominal and real terms, the central bank rates were high in the 1920s. They were very low compared to the extraordinary rate of return in most productive period in US economic history. Um, and uh, so interest rates were low there. And then, you, you know, you've got this great boom on Wall Street and a great rise in, in inequality. Uh, you know, followed by a collapse in the Great Depression, and then you know you, you've really seen the same phenomenon over the last actually forty years. And I have a chart where I show uh, taking the data from Emmanuel Says, who's the uh, a colleague of of Thomas Piketty's, where he has you know well share at the top. 1% of the population. And I show that it sort of tracks the return on the long bond yield. And the bo long bond yield, uh, that return is derived uh, in large part from the falling interest rates. And there's sort of almost a perfect match between the decline in interest rates and the accumulation of fast assets uh, by uh, a small section of population, and you forget about the one percent. I mean, the real story is in the point one percent, or the one in a one in a thousand. You 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 choose to end the book with a sub uh, chapter, a subtitled "The Road to Serfdom uh, Revisited," uh, about how kind of pernicious this this phenomenon is. And then uh, a year or two later, interest rates stop going down. Where we've had spikes in interest rates. And, uh, you know, what, what is your take? It's not in the book by definition, but you as a, uh, an observer of uh, the current market, guilds are spiking. There's a the liquidity, temporary liquidity crises in England right now. Uh, interest rates have moved up sharply in the United States. The U.S. 10 years at 4%. It's uh, really a quite striking and rapid reversal of the always low interest rate environment. We've had the return of inflation for the first time in decades. Uh, how, how, I mean, your, your thesis sort of played out, uh, uh, as I mentioned at the top of the show, but you know, what is your take now that it has and, and how things are, are proceeding? Well, um, the, the very low interest rates of the last decade uh, built, built sort of worm their way into the assumptions of um, investors and bankers and policymakers. Now, let me cite it. I think there's a good comment made by Seth Klarman, who's Boston hedge fund manager, really one of the most uh, 
successful and 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 intelligent uh, investors in in the United States. Now, at the end of two thousand twenty, Klarman wrote this to his in his client annual report to his clients: "The idea of persistently low rates has wormed its way into everything: investor thinking, market forecasts, inflation expectations, valuation models, leverage ratios." debt ratings, affordability metrics, housing prices, and corporate behavior. Moreover, by truncating downside volatility, forestalling business failures, and postponing the day of reckoning, such policies have persuaded investors that risk has gone into hibernation or simply vanished. Now, that was the prevalent that what Clemens talking about was the prevalent assumptions that were holding uh, until the beginning of this year. Uh, inflation appeared last year, but we were told it was only going to be temporary and that it was a blip, uh, something to do with you know interruption of supply chains during the uh, COVID pandemic. Um, and I, you know, then the markets woke up this year to the fact that. Um, it wasn't a blip that inflation was uh, more durable and that interest rates would have to rise to help contain inflation. So that all these assumptions uh, that that um, people had acted upon uh, are beginning to turn out to, to prove false. And every um, every financial crisis or bust in really occurs when market participants realise that their key assumption was wrong. And think back to, you know, in the dot-com bubble, there was this assumption that the internet was growing at, I don't know, sort of 100% every two months. That turned out to be an exaggerated phenomenon. Then it turned out that, you know, a lot of companies like Enron and WorldCom had borrowed too much money. They went bust. In the early 2000s, the assumption was... That um, that U.S. house prices could never fall, and so all these mortgages were bundled together. If you remember, cut into tranches and acquired by banks. That assumption was false, and the global financial system started to topple. And then we had the eurozone debt crisis. The assumption was um, all, all European bond yields would converge together, and there was no sovereign risk uh, within the eurozone. That assumption proved to be false and um and you know all hell break loose broke loose now i have to you know i don't like to say it but if interest is an omnipresent phenomenon and is everywhere and we have built a world on the assumption that interest rates would remain very very low indefinitely and have levered ourselves up and increased our uh, the valuations of assets and so on and so forth, and thought that we were worth X when really we were probably worth half X, then you can see that 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 the um, working out uh, of the retreat from that false assumption and the and if you will the the moving to a different world is is going to be uh, a difficult one. And so if not, if yeah. if the so if the historian in you is saying, forgive me for 
summarizing your words. The historian you was saying, I told you so. What is the investment strategist saying? I, I realize you have paying clients and we are not among them. So uh, you, you don't think of us the, the exact path to na- navigate this, but based on your review of the historical instances where these bubbles have burst in the past, you know, what? other than preparing for higher risk rates and higher risk a higher risk environment, is, is there a, a particular course of action that you would recommend the listeners and uh, readers of your book take? Um, it, it, it's it's difficult problem. I think you know problem of evading the consequences of of this um, of this of this um, you know this great wealth inflation uh, is 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 pretty much impossible. It's it's certainly impossible in aggregate for a society. I mean, you, you, you know, I show a chart of U.S. household wealth um, you know, at the end of last year, roughly, you know, two and a half percentage, two and a half times uh, U.S. GDP above its long term average. So I don't think there's any way in which society as a whole can protect itself from the normalization of valuations that will occur. Um, I think that. Um, I mean, yeah, there are things you can do. Um, print, and we, you know, what we've seen this year is that assets, uh, in technical terms, in in investment terms, we talk about duration, uh, which is the sensitivity of an asset uh, to a change in interest rate, and and because you know very long lived assets like equities or long term bonds are very sensitive to duration, um, and and we've seen that this year, you know the. The global bond and stock markets are are both in bad territory. Um, you can uh, mitigate that somewhat. Uh, for instance, you can buy what are called value stocks, you know, cheaper stocks. <laughs> Avoid the growth stocks that did very well in the last decade and buy the value stocks. And you know, and there are, you know, I think, there are some cheap equities out there. I think that the you know, go back to the subject of financial repression. Uh, I think that that financial repression. Uh, will continue in some shape or form, e- even if interest rates are going to be volatile. Uh, that the authorities will ke- keep interest, uh, you know, their policy rates below inflation. Uh, and I think the danger is that we've now moved into, a, you know, a period that you know might last several years in which inflation is quite high. And, and I think the way to, um, you know, to deal with that is. Now you can get decent yields on American inflation-protected bonds or TIPS, and you know gold. You know, the gold. If you're outside the U.S., gold has been reasonably good this year, and not so good in the U.S. because the dollar has been very strong. I think now, from an American-based investor, it's good time because the dollar is so strong to be buying cheap equities outside the U.S. in Japan or. Or, or some of the emerging markets. Although, as you know, I have a sort of great caveat about China, which we haven't spoken about, um, because I argue that, you know, that China has had this great real estate bubble and investment boom and credit boom. And I do think that, um, you know, that China is, is really a place where investors should steer clear for, you know, 
we I don't think we're going to have time for it, but I, I will mention to uh, prospective readers there is a long and very detailed chapter on China that is is worth the detour and, and to make sure that readers do uh, look at it. Edward Chancellor, thank you so much. Edward Chancellor is uh, the author of the just published The Price of Time: The Real Story of Interest, a well-timed book for anyone who is uh, puzzled and maybe concerned, as perhaps as they should be, about the rapid change in interest rates we've seen over the last uh, couple of months. This is uh, an excellent backgrounder as well as a tool to understand what is going on. Edward, thank you so much for, for being on the show. Yeah, well, thanks for having me, Daniel. 